I realized fear was my kryptonite, my parasite that had crippled and paralyzed me my entire life. And it's just a word. It's just a word. And what here's what I found out is danger is real. Fear is a choice. Welcome to the Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear podcast. This podcast is your resource for a scientific-based discussion of all things cancer and beyond from a natural, holistic, and integrative perspective. It's time to teach the body how to heal. So here we go. Well, here we are, another Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear podcast. This one is going to blow your mind. I actually have a published author here, a published scientific author. His name is Dan Meyer. Now, he's a good friend of mine, and he has a story to tell you that is really, I think, going to inspire you and lift your spirits and really embody hope over fear. And you hear me talk a lot about hope over fear, because when you talk about cancer, there's no diagnosis, there's no word that evokes more fear than that word. Yet, we know that word can really rip from people their hope, their dreams, their their capacity to even set goals and live. But what we need to do is actually conquer that fear with hope. Let the fear come on us because it will. We're humans and that's human nature. But don't let that fear take over us. So I think it's important in this process with this podcast is to not just present the evidence about natural, holistic, and integrative therapies in the healing process of cancer, but it's also to let people tell their stories, highlight their journeys, because in many ways, these can provide the means to build hope, the means to overcome fear when people are fighting this thing called cancer, because We want people to not just stop where they are in life because of that word. We want life to actually take a turn, one that focuses on hope, one that focuses on healing, and that fear and that cancer just moves behind it. So this is going to be a super exciting podcast. Two words I there I mentioned, hope and fear. Interestingly enough, you know me, I like the words hope and what they mean. The word hope simply means a confidence and trust in a future. But I think you would use a different word than hope, or it ties into it well, Dan. What would you call that? I use the word dreams. Yeah. Or there's yet another word beyond that called thromes. So tell me, so what does throne mean? Does throne mean dream? A throne, it comes from a book called The Thromes of Errol of Cheryl. It was a, a children's book about a young guy, a young knight who wanted the king's daughter's hand in marriage. And the king said, no, before I give you my daughter's hand, I want you to go out through my whole kingdom and find these thrones. And the guy said, what the heck are thrones? The king says, you'll, you'll find out when you find them. You'll, you'll know when you know. So the guy takes off and he really wanted the, the king's daughter's hand. So he traveled the whole kingdom and he comes back months later and King says, what did you find? And he presents him everything that he found. And the king said, wow, I didn't realize that was all out in my kingdom. You, you traveled more of my kingdom than I have. You must be really serious. And he granted him the, the wife's or the daughter's hand in marriage. But for me, when I was 20 years old, I was living in India. And I was a short-term Lutheran missionary there. 
and my team leader, it was the week before my 21st birthday. Let me back up just a little bit. You talked about fears. Yeah. The first 20 years of my life, I lived in complete fear. I couldn't talk. I stuttered. I would shake. My knees would shake. My whole body would shake. My heart was racing. My knees were shaking all the time. I, in class, I, I couldn't open my mouth. The bullies would tease me and beat me up, and I would just tremble, really, the first 20 years. And then when I was 20 years old, I went to got an opportunity to go to India with this Lutheran group, and I was like, sounds like fun. Yeah. And uh, so I went, and it was the week before my 21st birthday. My team leader, Greg Ormson, who ha actually happens to live right here in Mesa. Oh, wow. Um, he stopped me. It was about 115 degrees out, and we're walking. It was so hot. And we had our guitar cases, and he said, do you have thromes, Daniel? I said, thromes? What are thromes? He said, thromes are like a bucket list. If you could go any place you wanted to go, do anything you wanted to do, be anyone you want to be, where would you go? What would you do? Who would you be? I said, no, man, I can't do that. I'm too scared. I've got too many fears. That night, uh, it got down to about 105, and we're sleeping on the roof of the bungalow in a village in a place called Thiruvannamalai, India. And it was super hot. I fell asleep thinking about these thrones. Like, God, it's only a week before my birthday. I could do anything I wanted to do, go anyplace. You know, I don't know if I could do that. I'm, I'm from a poor family, don't have any money, don't have any incentive. I don't think I can do that. You had a different country. Different I mean, country, everything. Culture. So a few hours later, I wake up and my whole body is convulsing. My heart is racing. My knees are shaking. But this time it wasn't with fear. My whole body was eaten up. I had 105 degree malaria fever. Um, and for hours, actually for about five days, I had 105 degree fever. And the whole time I had this fever, all I could think about was thrones. If I if I could do anything I wanted to do, where what would I do? Where would I go? And finally, the night before my 21st birthday, April 6th, and my fever broke, and I suddenly got this little sense of realization, this clarity, and I realized that that little mosquito that had bitten me, uh, Anopheles stevensi, a little tiny mosquito, weighed less than a half a grain of salt, okay? If that little tiny mosquito could take out a 180 pound kid, you know, I realized that was my, like my kryptonite. And then I realized, no, it wasn't the mosquito, it was the parasite inside the mosquito, Plasmodium falciparum, yep. that kills over a million people a year, you know, and get in the bloodstream and kill people. And then I realized, no, it's even smaller than that, but to me, it seemed so much greater. I realized fear was my kryptonite my parasite that had crippled and paralyzed me my entire life. And it's just a word. It's just a word. And what here's what I found out is danger is real. Fear is a choice. It's something, it's an exaggeration. You can either believe it or not believe it. And you can, if my, the first 20 years I had lived in fear and I, I couldn't even go to school some days. If I had a pimple or my pants were too short, I was scared to death to go to school because I, just knew I was going to be teased. And I looked at the negative and I had this big black cloud over my head all the time. And everything I saw was fear. And then it just kept getting exaggerated, exaggerated. And I just kept being afraid of everything. So that night I prayed a little prayer and I said, all right, God, if you let me live till my 21st birthday, I will not let fear rule my life any longer. I'm going to put my fears to death and I want to take on risks and challenges. I want to find my purpose and calling. I want to know my life has meaning. I want to do something really remarkable with my life and somehow change the world. I want to prove the impossible is not impossible. 
and I won't tell you if I survive till my 21st birthday or not. I'll let you figure that out for yourself. I think you are 22. So yeah. <laughs> I acted. But anyhow, that night I made a list of thrones, 10 thrones, 10 Dream. things that I uh, dreams like bucket list. Yeah. And I thought, oh, these are never going to happen. But all right, I'd like to visit all the major continents, visit all the, uh, the seven wonders of the world, live on a ship in the ocean, live on a deserted island, live with a tribe of Indians work with the circus, work in the music business in Nashville, climb to the top of a the highest mountain in, in Scandinavia, jump out of an airplane and see Mount Everest at sunrise. So let me back up just a little bit because essentially what you had was you had the first part of your life that was dominated by fear. Yep. You, you didn't realize it, but you had basically made the choice to allow fear to control you. Yep. And then you had an event Mm -hmm. A catalyst. Yeah, that, that caused you to put to death fear yep. and allows, allow hope to rise. Yep. And I think that is a beautiful thing because what it, what it really is reflecting, though, is a change of your choice of words yep. that directed your life. Or choice of where you let your mind dwell, what you think on, what you believe on. Because, you know, when people are diagnosed with cancer or diagnosed with disease, you know, pick your name. One of the things that happens when they're told that they do quit dreaming, okay? Mm -hmm. And somebody that would be in that position of 105 fever for five days, you know, let alone one, mm -hmm. you know, um, dreaming is not going to be something that, that, that hits them at all nope. as a possibility. Nope. And, you know, when you look at words, they cut like a knife. Yep. Uh, the tongue is sharper than the, any sword. Yep. And yet what you've done is you basically completely depowered a word mm. that's fear and you conquered it at 21, right? Yeah. Almost 21. 21, yep. I mean, most 21-year-olds are just trying to figure out what the heck they're going to do for the day. Yeah, exactly. And you were overcoming malaria yep. and you were transitioning your life from one driven by fear that now became driven by hope and dreams. So I, you, you need to tell your story because I told you this before when we met. Your story just made me get goosebumps. It inspired me. So people out there need to hear your story. Well, you don't have to have malaria to do it. <laughs> That's right. That happened to be my catalyst. But what it did was the first 20 years, and I, looking back, it looks like I probably had social anxiety disorder. Because my, my whole body would tremble, my knees would shake, everything would shake. And I just, I dwelled in it, you know, I lived in it. And then something happened that night when I made that list of 10 thrones. And um, I thought, there's no way, I'm from a poor family, it's not going to happen, you know. I went back from India, went back to Indiana where I lived, Michigan City. Went back to the men's clothing store. One of the guys that was working in the clothing store said, he said, uh, so what are you going to do now after this big experience in India? I said, oh, I'll just come back to the mall and work at the clothing store some more. He said, no, don't do that. You've been through that door. Don't go back through that door again. Bite off more than you can chew. Find something else you can go for. I'm like, it kind of sounds like my thrums a little bit. So uh, the next day, a friend of mine from high school comes in with his parents. And everybody knew they were wealthy millionaires. They owned an island in the Bahamas. So they came in to buy some swimming suits. And as we're standing there talking, I sold them some swim swimming suits. And I said, oh, are you guys going down to your island in the Bahamas? And they said, yeah. And I said, wow, well, let me know if you need any help, you know. <laughs> and Mrs. Ruzik said, 
sure, we could use some help. Here's my phone number. Call me next week. And if you'd like to come on down, we got about four or five kids coming down. You can, you know, work a machete. And I said, oh, yeah, I was in Boy Scouts. So she said, you know, give me a call. I'm like, no way. Nobody ever gets to go to paradise like mm -hmm. that. Went home, talked to my parents. My dad was an insurance agent, had sold them insurance. He knew the family. He said, sure, you can go. I'm like, really? I can quit a real good job and go be a beach bum? But dad was pretty cool with it. So I went and checked one off my list, you know, live on a deserted island. Check. And then after that, every time I check one off my list, I'd add five or 10 more onto the list. And the list just kept growing. Went down, lived on this little island in the Bahamas, wore a loincloth, speared sharks and stingrays. I mean, you've shown me pictures of this. You're literally kind of like a castaway. A castaway. It's like Blue Lagoon. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Without, the, the Bahamians, the without Bahamians, the lady, though. Yeah. Bahamians <laughs> said, oh, we need to bring Brooke Shield over here, man. You know, right. like, yeah, right. They said, no, she lives over in Great Abaki. You know, her father, Frank Shield, has a, a, a condo over in Great Abaki, you know. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> One day, a boat pulls up next to my island. I think they're going to crash on the on the reef. And they said, Diver Don, come on up here, man. Island man, come on up here. So I get on the boat. There's Brooke Shields. They brought her out. She was oh. there. I got to meet her, you know. So you would get out there in the water, and you would basically spear your own food. Sharks, stingrays, lobsters, grouper. Caribbean lobster. Yep. Oh, I loved the lobster. Once I oh. found out where the lobster lived, that was, that was good. And I don't generally like seafood, but I do like lobster. So how long were you out there? A total of from 79 to 80, 85. A total, it was about five years altogether. I left and came back and became worked in a recording studio for the Bill Gaither Trio for a couple of years and was an audio engineer for them. And then I, I started thinking, man, I'd love to get back down on the island. Lord, you know, next thing I know, the phone rings is Mr. Ruzik. Hey, Dan, I got a cruise ship stopping on the island two days a week. You would be perfect as the island manager. You speak Bahamian. You know the waters. You know the island. Would you like to I'm like, dang, I just prayed for that last night. But but what's interesting is when you were, first went there, was there anything there? Nothing on the island. It was a mile long, about a third of a mile wide. And there was nothing on just a bunch no. of there was no trees. there was no you know bathroom there no, was no color no, no electricity no running water i i had i literally had a, a a pole and a bunch of knives lashed on the end of it that i would spear sharks and stingrays to live on <laughs> so anyhow though long story short is I ended up living on this little island for five years and then on a cruise ship for two years for about 200 cruises and became a scuba instructor and for a kid who was scared of the water afraid of sharks, afraid of just about everything. I was afraid of heights. I was afraid of doctors and nurses and yeah. needles and sharp objects. Mm -hmm. And it's just funny how it's all kind of come full circle, but ended up on this island, you know, Little Stirrup Key. It's now the number one island in the Caribbean for all the cruise ships. If you've ever been to Coco Key in the oh. Bahamas, oh yeah, that's that was my little island. Oh, you know, what's interesting about it there, I had the opportunity to be there uh, here not so long ago. You're kidding me. No, I and I was sitting there with my, my lovely bride, and I said, I wonder, is this the same island? And we were walking a beach out in the water. I said, is this the same island that Dan walked his beach in a loincloth? That was it. <laughs> you say, I didn't have a loincloth on. I had a bathing suit on. Yep. <laughs> yep. Well, that was it. And then from there, I moved after I got off the ship. And so I, I became a scuba instructor and learned first aid, CPR, life-saving, all this stuff got certified and uh, taught about 57,000 people how to snorkel 
every Wednesday and Sunday on the on the cruise ship. They'd come over to our island. Eventually, when got off the ship after two years, I moved to Mexico. I thought, oh, this is a great chance to learn Spanish. You know, a bunch of the guys that worked on the ship spoke Spanish, so I was kind of picking it up from them. And then from there, moved to Ecuador, lived with a tribe of Indians in the Amazon. Check, check another one off the list. Just good because you've talked about that, but I've never asked you what did you do there. I mean. I had the opportunity, a friend of mine would go back and forth to Ecuador and take tours there. And he asked if I wanted to come along and shoot video with him. I said, sure, I'd love to. And uh, ended up having a great time. We en ended up going into the interior and called the Rio Pastaza. And it's kind of one of the tributaries of the Amazon in Ecuador. And the tribe that we stayed with had been a headhunter tribe, apparently, you know, years back, lived in these big, tall, huts, you know, kind of thing. I'm like, I'm loving this. This is pretty cool. He's kind of Indiana Jones, you know. <laughs> but what happened to me is, going back to the thrones a little bit and the fear, I totally had forgotten about the fear. I'd gotten so fixated on my thrones and the stuff to look forward to, I didn't even have to worry about the fear stuff. That kind of faded away. I'm, I'm looking at you know, Bahamas and then Mexico and then Ecuador and then in what's over the next horizon. So basically your past you'd put behind you. I put behind, I still don't like snakes. I still don't like heights that much, but I didn't worry about it. Now I'm focused on, ooh, maybe I can make this happen. Maybe I can make this happen. Maybe this opportunity might come open. And so I, I my list of thrones went from 10 up to probably a thousand. You know, I kept adding new places and languages and instruments and stuff I wanted to learn. Every time I get to a new country, I'd want to go over the next horizon, the next, the next country or the next restaurant, or the next mountain, the next waterfall, whatever. And uh, I went to uh, went back to India years later, and I thought, man, I would love to get up to Nepal, but I don't know how expensive it is to get there. Didn't have much money. I checked the plane flights. They're like 40 bucks from Delhi to Kathmandu. I'm like, man, I can afford that. How much is a visa? $14. I can afford that. Called my roommate from college who had lived in, in Nepal for nine years as a missionary. I said, do you know anybody I can stay with? Yeah, we got a friend who's a musician. You can stay with him. You know, next thing I know, man, I'm... And something that seemed unbelievable or impossible suddenly is like, it is possible. Yeah, you simply, you didn't let fear tell you no. Nope. You just said how. And you know, that's, <clears throat> I'll touch on this at the end, but that is so much what people that are faced with cancer, and it's it's really the way conventional medicine too approaches cancer. People don't feel like they can dream anymore. Right. And it's fact, when you lose that capacity for dreaming. Yep. When you lose that capacity for hope, because they really are one and the same, yep. you lose really the drive to live. Yeah. Because I think we were created to dream. Yep. We were created to hope because it's through those processes by which we live. But I think it's really interesting. Well, is there anything else you did beyond? Don't 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 tell the final journey yet. But <laughs> but so you went to Nepal. What did you do in Nepal? Um, and my buddy says, hey. You know, put on your warmest clothes. I, I only had a suit coat with me. Put I hopped on the back of his motorcycle. He said, we're going to go for a trip. I'm like, okay, cool. And I thought it was just going down to the market or something. We drove for about five hours up the side of this mountain to this mountain called Nagarkot. Got to the top of Nagarkot. He said, I got, there's a hotel up there. 
We're going to stay here tonight. And tomorrow morning, if we're lucky, we might get to see Mount Everest. Oh, wow. It's 50, 25 miles, whatever it is, away. And it's cloudy 364 days of the year. But if we're lucky, we might. the next morning we got up about 4 o'clock in the morning, get out there, have our chai tea, you know, and the sun comes up. There was not a cloud in the sky. And you, I'm looking at the Himalayas, and all of a sudden the sun hit this one mountain peak, and it turned bright yellow when the sun hit it. Mm-hmm. And it was Mount Everest. And you could see it. There are no clouds on it or anything. I'm like, I can almost touch it. You know, I didn't climb it. I right. haven't climbed to the top. But I saw it at sunrise. And I actually got this. I'm like, I never thought I could do that. But yes, I am, I'm doing it. I'm right here doing it. And most people cannot say that they've done that. But so, that's just the way. Yeah. And what I've learned with the Thromes is it, don't focus on your fears. Don't focus on the negative. Don't let those get exaggerated. Focus on your dreams, focus on your thrones, focus on whatever it is. And believe it or not, it just, it gave me um, like a, 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 a zest for life. I was thriving like, man, I can't wait. To, now I want to go from Nepal. I want to get to Tibet. I want to go to Bhutan. I haven't been to those. Have you? No, oh, I have not. There, put them on your list. Tibet would be one of my, yeah. yeah. So it's like. Absolutely. And for me, I was thinking, no, it's impossible. Can't do that. I don't have the money. But no, it's not possible. You can do it. It's, uh, people do it every day. So that's my life. My, cha- my, my mind has changed not to focus on the 99% that's impossible, but to focus on that 1% that's plausible and find a way to make it possible. But in that, your dreams have changed you. They I mean, have. I mean, they have changed your course. They, you've had a course direction in your life. I have. I mean, because if you had stayed in those fears as a child, needless to say, you wouldn't have gone to the Bahamas. You wouldn't have gone to Nepal. You wouldn't have done those things. Nope. But then your 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 life took a little bit of a journey. Yep. Turn again. No surprise there. You decided to become a published scientific author. Very interesting article you decided to work on and publish. Mm-hmm. Can you tell the listeners here the title of your published author your published paper as an author in what journal was that again? The British Medical Journal. Yeah, just a little small little medical I'd journal. I'd never heard of it before. <laughs> BMJ. It's, it's a big Everybody goes, it's a biggie, you know, like, yeah. really? And a lot of people are ticked at me like, you're not a doctor. How'd you get published the BMJ? Like, <laughs> I just, I focused on it, you That's know, right. and it, it happened. So, uh, to bring it up to, to speed there, um, I also wanted to work with a circus. So I had learned juggling and uh, unicycle riding and stilt walking and fire eating and glass eating where you can unscrew a light bulb and just eat it like a, like nachos. Oh my goodness I'll show you sometime. <laughs> I'm sure you will. But you know, it's just like, don't focus on the 99% that's impossible. Focus on what actually makes it possible that you can do these kind of things. And then in 1997, I heard there were less than and I, I got to work with circus. I got to clown with Hoxie Brothers and Carson and Barnes. Oh, wow. um, in 1997, I heard there were less than 12 sword swallowers left in the entire world. I said, man, that's as close as you can get to real magic. You know, let's go. And I met a sword swallower in Nashville named George the Giant, who's still a dear friend of mine. He's seven foot three. Oh, wow. He's a giant. And he came out to, they were passing through town and he was performing that night. So I said, Give me some tips on sword swallowing, man. And he said, I'll give you two tips. Number one, it's extremely dangerous. 29 people have died doing this. Number two, don't try it. 
Well, it didn't dissuade me. If anything, I'm like, I'm adding that to my list of thrones, baby. And I practiced 10 to 12 times a day, every day for four years, a total of about 14,000 unsuccessful attempts before I got the first sword down in 2001, February 12th. And then it took off from there. I was working in the music business in Nashville, one of my, another one of my thrones, and producing and engineering albums and, and working on copyright licensing and stuff. And boom, I started touring with Brooks and Dunn, opened for them for a couple of years and started doing Guinness World Records and Ripley's and everything else. And in 2002, I started doing a medical research paper on sword swelling. And I got contacted by a radiologist at Gloucester um, Royal Hospital, Gloucestershire Royal Hospital in England. And he was fascinated with x-rays that he had seen of sword swallowers. And so I worked with him. I was president of the Sword Swallowers Association at the time. So I sent out a survey to all of the living sword swallowers worldwide to ask them how long it took them to learn to swallow a sword, what length, what width, what their weight, weight was, you know, any injuries that they'd had, what, what was their diagnosis, how long did it take them to heal, this kind of thing. And we published it in the British Medical Journal. And we got published in uh, December of 2006, the December BMJ. And in 2007, I get a phone call from Harvard saying, hey, Dan, uh, you've been nominated for the 2007 Ig Nobel Prize in Medicine at Harvard. I'm like, what? Is this a joke? You know, and I kind of look up and I kind of could imagine God smiling at me going, go ahead, I got you. <laughs> like, this has got to be a God thing because I didn't plan this one at all. Went to Harvard you know, accepted the Ig Nobel Prize, did several uh, Ig Nobel tours at universities around the world, Erasmus University in Netherlands, mm -hmm. um, um, Dundee, Dundee, University of Dundee in, Scot in Scotland, yeah. and Liverpool, and wow. all over England and Sweden and Denmark, and just all over India, different places. And it was like, this is pretty cool. And so then I got to speak to medical associations and, and what, we'd show the fluoroscope. The Ig Nobel Prize is... It comes out about a week before the Nobel Prize does in Stockholm. But the Ig Nobel Prize is for real medical scientific research that first makes you laugh and then makes you think. And the title of our paper was Sword Swallowing and Its Side Effects. Yeah. And people will chuckle at that thinking, oh, it's got to be a joke or the, the, the side effects are death, right? That's right. And then we would do our presentation. Dr. Whitcomb and I would do a presentation and, and we'd I'd show all the floris, the um, fluoroscopes and x-rays and everything. And so people would go, oh, it is real. Yeah, wow. so it, it's very real. And, very and real. I've seen some of your um, sword swallowing uh, events, but you describe what you have to do to pass this solid, sharp piece of steel. Mm-hmm from your mouth down into your esophagus yep. and even lower. Yep. Because I've seen you drop a, well, I've seen on TV you drop a car axle. That's what, jokingly, I tell all of our, um, well, I won't say that right now, but <laughs> but so describe the anatomical journey okay. of, of a sword. And it was fun studying it because I would go to doctor's offices and while I'm in the waiting room, I'm looking at the posters on the wall going, okay, that's epiglottis. This is the, you know, I'm trying to learn the, the anatomy to figure out where it goes. And honestly, the first couple of years, I really thought it was fake. I thought they can't really be swallowing a sword. It's like 99% impossible to swallow a sword. But you know what? If you line everything up just right, line up all the plumbing, 
there's about a 1% possibility you can actually get a piece of metal all the way down to the bottom of your stomach. And so I just focused on that 1%, not on the 99% that was impossible, that 1% that was plausible and figured out how to do it. And so, like I said, I practiced for the, the four years. What I found out is to swallow a sword, I have to stick the sword into my oral cavity over the, over the tongue. When it gets to the back of the throat, it runs into the, the first reflex, which is the gag, gag reflex. Yeah. And pretty, a lot <laughs> of people- be a big one overcome. Have, you know, people say, I can't even brush my teeth or go to the dentist with a gag reflex. And I, I have a gag reflex, I still have one, but right. I've learned to repress it. Then I had to learn to, to navigate a 90 degree turn down the upper esophagus, the esophagus here, mm -hmm. go through the cricopharyngeal upper esophageal sphincter, through the hyoidal ring here first, and then the cricopharyngeal upper esophageal sphincter. Then down into the esophagus. And there's something you encounter or come close to in the chest, right? There is. Well, before I get to that one up here, for the four years, I kept hitting a bump in the back of my throat and the sword wouldn't go down. It would just hit a bump and I'd gag a little bit. And I finally, one day, February 12th, I changed my attitude, changed my, kind of like I did when I put my fears to death. I changed my attitude. And instead of doing it with just one hand, which my shoulders were a little bit crooked, I straightened up and did two hands and I leaned back a little bit further and I tried it and all of a sudden the sword went down about six or eight inches. And I'm like, holy cow, did I just go into my lung? Or <laughs> I pulled the sword out, I didn't see any blood on there. I had to wait till the next day to look at the stool sample to see if there was any <laughs> blood in the stool, you know, none. I said, I think I actually did it. Don't do this at home. Don't, do, don't yeah, try this do, at home. Don't do this. <laughs> So then when you get, so that's really the hardest one is finding the alignment into the epiglottis and flipping your epiglottis open. Your epiglottis is a little flap that kind of closes off your trachea, your, your air tubes, so you can breathe and it allows food to go down into your stomach or air to come out of your lungs. It's designed to keep things from going down. down. There. It shouldn't be going down exactly. there like it's swords. the wrong pipe. The wrong yeah, pipe. Like swords. Yes. <laughs> so I learned to, to flip that and eventually learn to open it up where I can swallow a sword down my esophagus, but the air can still come up through my trachea and I can talk and smile and do whatever. It's still not real comfortable. It's one of the most uncomfortable things in the world to have something down your throat. But, I can imagine. And then from there, when it gets into the thoracic chamber in the in between the, the lungs, it runs into the highest concentration of blood vessels in the human body, an organ known as the cardiac muscle or the heart. The heart. You were in class that day. Yes, I was. Yeah, I yeah. was. I was. <laughs> and so the heart is kind of center left a little bit. As the esophagus goes down, it kind of makes a three-way juncture around the heart. So as I get to the heart, I actually have to nudge my heart to the left a little bit. It displaces the heart. Can you feel that? Uh, there aren't, aren't any nerve endings there that I can feel it, but I can see my blade beat with the heart because it's leaning against the heart separated by an eighth of an inch of esophageal tissue. And you can't fake that. No, no. When I get it past the heart, when I get down to you, and if you're you're watching at home, feel your breastbone, feel where your sternum is. I go about another inch and a half past that, and then there's a really tight, like a rubber band that kind of closes off your esophagus, which is the LES or lower esophageal sphincter. Sphincter, and yeah. we all wanted to say that on camera, right? Sphincter, sphincter. Yeah. Oh yeah, sphincter. <laughs> and it took me because everybody's sphincters tighten it tight, up, right? Tighten now. it up right <laughs> now. Oh, no, no. I mean, you have a, a sphincter here, and have one here, and elsewhere. But that's right. But so, <laughs> I, it took me a long time to finally open up that sphincter, 
and then repress the peristalsis reflex, the 22 pairs of muscles that swallows your bolus of food in your, down your throat, and repress the peristalsis reflex in the stomach and the gag reflex up here. And then I slide the blade past my liver and kidneys down into the stomach, all the way down to the duodenum or duodenum. If I were to go further than that, it would go all the way down to my fallopian tubes. Uh, no, I think you got that anatomy. Okay, good. You missed that anatomy. Yeah, okay. yeah right. Yeah. <laughs> There's always about a, a two-second lull in my shows, and then the, the ladies always laugh. The kids are like, what's he talking yeah, about? Right. And the guy's going, what? What but, about this guy? Do I not know? <laughs> That's kind of the anatomy of where it goes. And most swords, there's about a 22-inch uh, distance from the bottom of your stomach to about your teeth when your head is back. Wow. 22, 23 inches. So most of my swords, I cut them off at about 24 inches. So they're 23, 24. Sometimes they clink on my teeth. Sometimes I'll do a little bit longer sword than that. But um, that's pretty much the maximum. You don't want to go past that. Yeah. But what's interesting, it's not just that you overcame fear with hope and dreamed again, but it's that you didn't let a failure stop you either. Here's the thing I've been learning lately. I had 14,000 failures. Now, you think about how many times, you know, you failed at whatever it is, a job or a marriage or bankruptcy or whatever it is. I had 14,000 of them over and over. And I just didn't because you never know when you're just so close. I guess it was... Uh, uh, Edison, who did like 9,999 trials on the light bulb. And he he didn't quit. He just kept going because you never know which which one is going to be that breakthrough that's going to be the one that's, the, this is going to be the one that does it. I didn't want to quit, you know, one before, one short of, of doing it. And one day it happens. For me, it was about 14,000. We found during the, doing the this survey of all the swords followers that it takes most people from three to five to 10 years to learn to swallow a single sword. Some people don't. I had one apprentice who worked with, I worked with him for 10 years. He did all the other sideshow stunts and he still can't get his sword down his throat. So it's it's not something that everybody can do, but it is uh, pretty Which, next to impossible. So would you say that give up is in your vocabulary? As a little kid, it was it was my mantra. My dad would say, if you can get in the pool at the Y and swim across there, I'll give you five bucks if you can swim across the pool. I said, I can't, I can't, I can't. And we lived on Lake Michigan. I'd try and get out in the lake and swim. Oh, I can't. I, I was afraid of sharks in Lake Michigan, you know. And uh, so everything was, I can't, I can't. That was my mantra at first. Now my mantra is, oh, yeah, let's see if we can do this. Let's see if we can make this. Years ago, if you would have given me a ticket to... Bucharest, or let's say Madrid, Spain, or whatever, like, oh man, I'd be scared to death because I don't know the language, I don't know where I'm going. Now you give me a plane ticket, oh yeah, baby, let's go. It's like, I'm ready to, 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 to go for it. So my whole attitude has changed. I've noticed, I heard somebody said that sometimes people are afraid of water, but if, if you can get past that fear of water, now some people get on surfboards on top of a big wave and they're pushing the envelope. They're right on the edge of, of danger there. And kind of, it, it sounds nuts, but yeah. that's where the, the exhilaration is. That's where life gets really vibrant is when you're on the edge and you're kind of overcoming that fear. And no, I don't have a death wish. I'm not a daredevil. I'm... And it's not even, and I've, this is something I've learned even along. And so out of my th thousand or so thromes, I've checked off 
lots and lots of them. I've been to 55 countries now, and there was probably another 100, well, 50 left that I want to go visit. But um, I, it's, I don't focus on... Somebody said, I guess it was Solomon's, he said, you know, everything is vanity. Hmm. You, you know, I can have everything in the world. I can do everything. I can go everywhere. But it doesn't, it's, not, it's not worthwhile just to check stuff off your list and say, okay, been there, been there, done that, done this, done that, right. pulled this off. That's not so important. When you, when you get to that point, then you kind of start to realize, you know what? It's not about the swords or the swords following right. or the countries or the travel or the thrones. It's about finding my purpose and calling and helping somebody else in their life, help, helping them overcome their fears and do the impossible in their life. Make the impossible possible. Make the impossible <clears throat> possible. That's what, I, that's what I tell all of our patients that come in with cancer. Yep. Don't look at what you've been told you have as impossible yep. just say what can we achieve and then let the body decide mm -hmm. so your story in and of itself is absolutely amazing and worthy of a movie okay <clears throat> but what is next for dan meyer i mean what what can you do that tops all of that uh, I'm not sure, but I'm always looking for that next. <laughs> That's right. You going so, to space anytime soon or anything? I've I've wanted to be the first sword swallower in space. I haven't been to Antarctica yet. That's still one. If anybody know, knows any good cheap trip tricks to Antarctica, I want to go. I'm going to be the first sword swallower in Antarctica. <laughs> as long as the sword doesn't stick on my tongue. That's, yeah, I'd say that you might have a problem yeah. there. <laughs> but um, no, I've, I started kind of pushing the envelope and... I started with one sword and just kept doing one sword for about five years. We had sword swallowers conventions in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania for a few years. And finally, one year, I looked at these old photos of sword swallowers in the 1940s and 50s who could swallow five swords. This one guy had gotten a Guinness World Record for swallowing five swords. I thought, I bet I can do that. So I took the one sword that I knew I could swallow, my favorite sword, and I put another sword on top of it. And I thought, you know what? I know I can swallow that first one. If I can get this second one on top of it, where it's kind of not not jutting out, I bet I can do two. And I worked on it that week, and I finally got down two swords. And then I thought, you know what? If I can do two, I can wedge a third sword right between those two, and make a little sandwich out of it. And so I did three, and I did four, and I did five. And when we got to the, the Sword Swallowers Convention, I ended up swallowing seven swords at once. Oh, wow. At one time, sticking out of my mouth. It became the Yahoo photo of the day. Seven impossible tasks. All at once. All at once. Then I took it from there and went up to, eventually up to 11 and 15. Then I heard that somebody in India had broken the record by doing 21 swords. The Guinness World Record was 21 swords. I said, okay, if he can do it, I can do, you know, I can do it too. So I worked on the 21, 21. I finally got out. I had a stack of swords made, 29 swords at once. <laughs> and uh, if you want, I'll send you a picture. You might be yeah, able to yeah. stick it in there. But I got 29 swords down. Then I realized, you know what? I lived on an island for seven years, swam with sharks every day for seven years. It became like friends of mine. I could swim with them, pet them. It's kind of like a Steve Irwin, Indiana Jones on this island. Oh. I had um, stingrays that would come up and I'd feed them on my chest. I, they love Cheese Whiz. <laughs> I, I get this can of Cheese Whiz and feed it. Cheese Whiz. They loved it. And they're super soft and they're kind of slimy and some of them get to be quite large, but oh. they're really 
pretty gentle, docile, as long as you stay away from their stinger. That's yeah. what killed Steve Irwin. So I played with the sharks and the stingrays, and I thought, I can swim with sharks and stingrays. For seven years, I'd done that. And I've swallowed swords for seven years. Ripley's Believe It or Not, a friend of mine was vice president there. He contacted me. He said, we're having a big, big deal at our Ripley's in Myrtle Beach, and we're doing a Pirates of the Caribbean exhibit in our aquarium, the Ripley's Aquarium. Have you got anything you can do to help us promote that? I said, yeah. How about a... I know I can swallow swords. I've been doing that for seven years. I know I can swim with sharks. I've done that for seven years. I wonder if I can swallow a sword underwater in a tank of sharks and stingrays. They said, let's do it. <laughs> so in my head, you know, I'm like, I know they're both kind of vaguely possible, <laughs> in the, but I don't know if I can put them together and do them. So they flew me out there to Myrtle Beach. We practiced a, a month or two early because they wanted to make sure I could do it. Mm -hmm. And got in this tank of 88 sharks and stingrays and swallowed a few uh, swords underwater in the in the tank. It went viral. It was on 500 TV stations that weekend, CNN and a bunch of stuff. It kind of took off. And I got my first Ripley's cartoon. You know, man swallows sword underwater in a tank of 88 sharks. Then they gave me another cartoon for swallowing a 100-year-old handsaw. It was over 100 years old. It belonged to a sword sweller named Edith Clifford, who had performed with the Ringling Brothers back in the 1890s, early 1900s. And I got her saw. I owned all of her swords and her saw. So I swallowed that saw at a museum in Connecticut. And somebody there sent it into Ripley's, and they I got a Ripley's cartoon out of that. So now my brain is like, okay, what else is possible? And then... In 2013, I decided I wanted to try and pull a car by sword. <laughs> so I talked with Ripley's. They said, sure, do it at Ripley's Baltimore. So it was World Sword Swallowers Day, which is a thing. It's a, a, a date that I created the last Saturday of every February, which was just this past Saturday. It was World Sword Swallowers Day. And I pulled this Mini Cooper car covered with a million dollars of Zorovsky um, jewels, gems, oh, wow. and pulled it out of the, pulled it about 20 feet. And I swallowed this little sword, this little one, it's actually right over there. And it had a strap to it and I attached to the car. And I pulled that car out, out of the Ripley's Baltimore. And that video kind of went viral. Next thing I know, America's Got Talent calls me and says, would you like to be back on America's Got Talent? I'd done America's Got Talent to the finals back in 2008. Mm-hmm. 2016, they called me and said, would you like to be back on America's Got Talent? I said, sure. What, in Miami or Orlando? I was living in Tampa at the time. You know, next year? And they said, no, tomorrow in Hollywood. Oh, wow. In Pasadena, actually. I said, sure. They said, we want you to pull a car like we saw in that video. Like, what kind of car are you getting? I don't know. We'll find a car for you. Just get on the plane and get here. So I got there about four in the morning, got up at six, filled out all the paperwork and did the whole thing. They made me wait. I finally didn't get to perform till 1230 that night, which is like 330 in the morning, Tampa time. Oh. Nothing to eat. I hadn't, really hadn't slept hardly at all in 24 hours. And I'm thinking, oh, Lord, I don't know if I can do this or not. But you know what? In my mind, it's about 1% possible that if I lean, if I swallow that sword and lean forward and use my body weight to lean me like I'm going to fall down on the ground, and lean forward, that car's going to have to give a little bit. It took about 15 seconds, but the car finally moved about half an inch and an inch. And I just kept pulling and pulling. I pulled it about 20, 20-some 20 feet across the stage. 
and Simon couldn't watch it. Heidi couldn't know, watch he was it. I've watched that video. How we couldn't watch it, but, <laughs> but, it, but it worked. And from there, they they invited me to come do Italy's Got Talent, Tuesday Gavales in Italy, and France's Got Talent, and Israel's Got Talent, and Australia's Got Talent. For five years, they've been trying to get me to do. Last year, I finally went and did Australia's Got Talent. I broke a Guinness World Record by pulling a car 22 feet. The furthest one that had ever been pulled before was 20, 20 feet and some inches. And now you're so, fixing to go to Norway. I'm and... so going back to Sweden. I won okay, the Sweden, golden Sweden. golden buzzer in Sweden okay. in October. Yeah. So I'm going back in about two weeks and doing the finals of Sweden's Got Talent. And then from there, I'm flying, hopefully, flying to Madrid, Spain to do Got Talent All-Stars uh, in Spain. And then i got a few others. You know, so I, I'm, I'm looking forward to all the, yeah. all the fun things. One thing leads to another. But, you know, what's interesting is when you connect the dots of your past, if we just collected your dots and, and we, we wouldn't see all that you've become and really the inspiration that you are to so many. And that's why it's so pertinent to to our patients and our listeners, anybody with disease or cancer or just doesn't think that they can be healthy or well again. But. It's those connection of those collections of dots Mm -hmm. that have brought you where you are today. Mm -hmm. So what's your next dot? What's your next obstacle? What's your next fear to overcome? uh, My mom was born in Papua New Guinea in a tribe of headhunters. So one of my big thromes is to get to Papua New Guinea and see where mom was born and see the churches that grandpa had founded there. I got to Australia last year for a month, COVID hit, we couldn't film, got sent home. This year I went back and did it for a month. And I thought, you know what, I just turned 65. I'm gonna see if I can lose a little weight and do it shirtless, you know, and pull the car. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, I, I lost the weight. Is there a picture of that somewhere? <laughs> no, I lost the weight. And I, uh, I did, uh, I bulked up, I was working out at three different gyms a day and everything, I was doing great. Come back from Australia, I thought, oh, geez, I'm 65. Medicare, you know, covers it. I might as well get a colonoscopy and get that checked out. And I did in the, the they, on October 10th, October 15th, the doctors called me and said, okay, well, you've got uh, two tumors. I said, tumors? Like as in cancer tumors? Yeah, you've got two tumors. Uh, one about the size of a peanut, one about the size of a, of a walnut uh, in your colon. And, uh, um, so if you come back in tomorrow, we can in, in, put a port in you. And by the way, while you're under, we can cut out part of your cecum, which is where your other tumor is, between your large intestine and your small intestine. We can sew those together. I'm like, and he said, and we can start chemotherapy and read. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I said, I can't. He said, why not? I said, well, I'm going tomorrow to Alaska State Fair. I helped get Darcy Lynn booked there and I'm opening for her and I'm I love Alaska State Fair is one of my favorite fairs. I've done it four or five times now. Absolutely love it. He said, well, okay, how about the week after that? Oh, no, I'm doing Eastern Idaho State Fair for 10 days. Can't do that when I've got that one already booked. Okay, the week after that, no, I'm doing a, a castle in Indiana. Okay, after that, I'm doing Sweden's Got Talent. So I kind of put him off, put him off. And but that's you, were di- that's, you were diagnosed with cancer, though. But I was diagnosed with, with uh, adena, ad, adenocarcinoma. Adenocarcinoma, the adeno, colon. Carcinoma. And that's when I was talking with you at church. Yeah. And it was like, and you're like, you know, we don't, there are other options. We yeah. have different things that we can do. You don't have to. So I started doing a lot of homework and reading and started getting on different protocols. 
and come to find out I had a PET scan done, found three more tumors. But as far as we can tell, those may be benign or not a big deal right now. They don't seem to be anything. They may just be black dots. The other two tumors uh, and the other three are, are so the, these doctors call them non-cancerous or precancerous. Right. The two main ones that we were involved in with may be shrinking or breaking up or defragmenting or something based on a lot of the protocols I'm on that any one of which could shrink it down. But if we can shrink those tumors down. So the doctors told me that day, he said, oh, so you've got uh, you've got cancer now, uh, colon cancer, colorectal cancer. I'm like, oh, good. And they're like, are you nuts? If, they, like, did, if they didn't know. If they didn't know my, my story. That's right. If they didn't know your dots, the collection of those dots, the connection of those dots, they wouldn't understand. But do you think that your past has prepared you for today? I'm 100% sure of it. That's the whole. I think that's part of the reason I have cancer. God could have made it go away. Right. He could have made it go away that second day. He could have just healed me miraculously and nobody would see it. Nobody would get it. I have, I have to go through all the paperwork and the proof and the statistics that people can go, oh yeah, doctors have, you know, we've seen it. You've got cancer. Oh good. Now God can get rid of it and he can get glorified in it. So are you dominated by fear? Not anymore. Do you still have hope and do you still dream? I still have hope and still have dream. Every every time I check one throne off my list, I add five or 10 more onto my list. So this is your next throne. My, it's, it's one of the biggest ones is right. I got to get past this cancer. Right. I've got invitations to do. Germany's got talent. Romania's got talent. Georgia's got all these other things in Europe. I don't have time for cancer. Not that I'm going to ignore it. We're going to knock it out. But mentally, people are like, aren't you scared? Of it? No. It We've partially because of the research I've done and that you've done, I've seen that cancer can be can be flipped healed. can be there can be a remission you it can be healed it can be healed and i've got tons of people praying a dear friend of mine is a praying medic yeah he's prayed for me many times people at church you've prayed for me at church your wife everybody and i'm waiting for god to be glorified that this thing is going to be like we're going to go back in for a, a pet scan they're going to go what cancer where is it like ah good that's what we're waiting for so oh by the way i forgot to tell you your lab show you may be just a little bit low in iron oh i know it i'm kind of anemic here but yeah. uh, i think i got a way i can figure i can uh, re remedy that do you think so uh -huh. you think, think so? so yeah let's let's see is this going to be safe uh no it won't be safe but who said because i didn't bring any iron tablets uh no i have plenty of iron yeah. with me here <laughs> So would you take a look at that? Verify that is a real sword. You can hit it. That is a solid steel. It's about a 24-inch long blade. Wow. And it's relatively heavy, right? Oh, There's yeah. no buttons on there. No place it's going to fold up in the handle, right? Uh, no, not at all. And you're a doctor. You're... And that's quite heavy, too. It's quite heavy. Yeah. And we'll, we'll do it this way here. But you can see that is solid steel. Wow. So what I'm going to do is slide this all the way down here. I'm going to do, I think we got enough room here. I'm going to do a drop where I can actually drop it down in my body like this. I'm going to lean towards the cameras, and then I'm going to come around this way. Are you right-handed or left-handed? I am right-handed. Good, and you are sworn to the Hippocratic Oath, right? Oh, yes. To not injure me. That's okay. right. Do no so Just pull it out very gently. That's a good point. Yeah, and just don't scrape it up my backbone like, that really hurt, and don't, don't, you know, don't, don't pull it out too fast. It'll slice the sides of my throat, okay? <laughs> okay. 
but not too slow or I'll gag and don't right. scrape it up the backbone. That just, you know, just pull it straight out like this, okay? okay. And whatever you do, don't push. Okay? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's okay. right. That, that's a, that's a so here we go. You guys get to see this. 24 inches of cold hard steel. Oh, my. Oh, my. So I just pull it straight out. There you go. Now, how that works with cancer, I have no idea, but I think we just tied it all together. I don't know how to end this episode other than, Dan, you are an inspiration. <laughs> you you give people hope. Your life has is going to just help people to keep dreaming. No matter what name is attached to them by any doctor, what kind of cancer, yep. you're providing the hope and the dreams for them to go another day. Yep. And even if therapy doesn't work the first time, the first failure, the second failure, the third failure, it never stopped you dreaming. It never stopped you having hope. It might take 14,000 failures, but hopefully you know, we're going to find that. No, it'll yeah. be quicker than that, that yeah. we'll find the right solution. And, and I'm looking forward to being back on the road. I've got a full schedule this summer. Got to do it. Thank you for helping me being able to Brother. fulfill all this stuff. So, love you, love you. So, Dr. Goodyear. One of my most favorite episodes here, practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear. So if you want to learn how to how to heal from cancer, how to learn how to hope, how to keep your dreams, overcome your fear, not just focus on evidence of natural, holistic, and integrative cancer treatments. We do plenty of that. We do those deep dives. But to hear real life stories, people that have overcome their hope, their fear, to provide hope and to dream. Don't stop dreaming. Follow us, of course, on our Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear on the website at drgoodyear.com, Instagram, dr.goodyear. Wherever you want to find us on social media, you will find us there. Look forward to talking to you soon. For more information, just like what we discussed today, I encourage you to follow us on YouTube as well as all of your favorite audio streaming platforms. And in there, we'll talk about all things related to healing, wellness, cancer, and much, much beyond because it doesn't just apply to cancer. Our goal here is to turn to healing, restore health, and promote your wellness, whether that greatest obstacle to wellness being cancer or any other named disease. Our goal is your wellness. I'm Dr. Nathan Goodyear, and enjoy our future podcast at Practicing with Dr. Goodyear.